Would you believe that the US government interferes in the provision of healthcare to make it more expensive rather than less expensive? Why would they do that? Welcome to episode 126 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samaroff. And this is the third in our trilogy on why healthcare is so expensive in America. First episode, we talked about Medicare for all. The second episode, we talked about the role of private insurers, naughty, naughty, naughty corporations getting in bed with the government of America to overcharge you for healthcare. So today I want to talk about the way that the government restricts the supply of healthcare in terms of hospitals, um, service staff, you know, doctors, um, nurses, professionals, surgeons, patents, all sorts of things. We're going to do a little bit of a deep dive. We might be shy of half an hour today because this is from my forthcoming book, Why is Healthcare in America So Expensive? And this chapter is shorter. Well, I don't know. We'll see. So what I want to talk about is the vast and complex array of edicts and restrictions on who can provide healthcare services in the USA and to whom. Many of them completely unnecessary and the only thing they do is serve small entrenched interest groups who profit from high prices and lack of competition. Just think about that. If you're a hospital that's run for profit, why do you want five or six more hospitals opening up in your local area? If you're a pharmaceutical company, if you're uh, any sort of medical provider, do who stands to gain from you having competition? Certainly not you. On a free market, supply and demand economics teaches us that anywhere where there's a massive amounts of profit to be made, the natural thing is for more providers to crop up. If the price of, I don't know, steel goes through the roof, then people are going to try and look for ways to go into the steel industry to provide more steel or mine more steel to take advantage of higher costs. That is how a market is supposed to work. So it would be suspicious that the cost of healthcare in the United States is so high and that this kind of natural mechanism of market competition hasn't come to save the day, especially at you when you look at what is being charged in some hospitals, like, for example, the Surgery Center of Oklahoma, who put all their prices on their website and sometimes charge a fifth or a tenth of what many of the other commercial hospitals are charging, and that other hospitals can be charging several times as much for exactly the same um, the same services. A study published in Health Affairs found that some hospitals were charging 3.4 times the cost of patient care on average as what it costs to deliver care. So that's like what, more than a 75% profit margin? The so-called most greedy, at the 50th so-called greediest hospitals, they were charging more than 10 times the actual cost of care. So a lot of money flowing into private coffers. You think a bunch of people would want to start providing healthcare to take advantage of those massive profit margins. So why aren't they? Well, while healthcare in the USA is largely administrated by private companies, it's not representative of a free market. Because if it was a free market, anyone who's qualified could just set up a clinic and start serving patients. Um, 
the uh, if it was a free market, there'd be a straight transaction between buyer and seller. Um, so in some states, if you want to open up a hospital, you're actually obliged to go before a committee, an official board, and you have to demonstrate that the community needs that hospital and that you're willing to fund it all by yourself as well. So this is an interesting thing. Imagine that, right? You need to go in front of a board and say the community needs a hospital. Imagine if you had to do that to open a cafe or a factory or any other kind of business. Usually what we think is, well, let you try and run your business. And if there's a demand for it, you'll turn a profit and you'll be able to stay open. But if you're making something that no one wants, you'll go out of business. Plain and simple. We don't need official boards to decide who can provide what services, but not in one of the most important services of all, which is, of course, healthcare. No, for that, the government needs to tell you whether you're allowed to build a hospital or not. And here's the rub. Some of the people on the board, the official board, are actually going to be senior administrators from already existing hospitals. So the <laughs> those, all, those people, and the already existing hospital want the competition, quite frankly, like a hole in the head. Um, so, because think about it, if a new hospital opens that's better equipped or cheaper or friendlier, or they have more advanced technology, um, or in any way outcompete the, the the existing hospital, then people are going, they're gonna garner a good reputation and they're gonna force the existing hospitals to modernize and to compete. So these laws have come under scrutiny because they're so blatantly, you know, crony capitalists, the government in bed, bed with big business. Um, it's funny how much people think that the government is meant to be a referee in the market and protect safe practices. But what is the actual incentive of government to do? Is it to get to referee the market or is it to get in bed with the biggest most powerful players in a sort of I'll scratch your back you scratch mine sort of way the big players can provide them with campaign finance get their people elected all sorts of things so Obamacare you know god bless Obamacare was passed in 2010 and they said that there can be no government payments to any hospitals owned by doctors now libertarians may very well think that government shouldn't be paying out to hospitals that are owned by doctors. The problem is not that in isolation, it's just the fact that why are they specifically disadvantaged if funds are available to help hospitals that aren't owned by doctors? So that dis um, deters the construction of any hospitals that have any portion of physician ownership. And it's funny because the left used to go on at least, oh, workers should own their workplaces. Well, so much for that left-wing ideal. Um, so, some, some practitioners might still be able to operate hospitals that don't see government patients. That's the thing. So they, they, they would have to not see Medicare or Medicare clients. So they'd be limited in their pool of potential bus um, business compared to more corporate hospitals. Um, so basically, we've talked about how 
a limit, uh, high profits and insufficient supply should call in more suppliers. Um, so let's talk about when the government started to clamp down on the provision of healthcare, and it didn't start with hospitals, right? The American Medical Association was founded in 1847, and it's had this government-granted monopoly on the healthcare system for over 100 years, um, well, 150 years now. So it has intentionally restricted the number of doctors allowed to practice medicine to raise physician incomes artificially. There was this great article, I think it's by Roderick Long, how the government's saved us from the healthcare crisis or something like that, where he talks specifically about how at the time doctors were complaining that their pay was too low for the kind of work that they did. And so they came in to restrict the supply of healthcare. It created its Council on Medical Education in 1904 and immediately shut down 25 medical schools within three years. And then um reduced the number of students at the re remaining schools by 50% and then it shut down another 10 schools over the next three years. So that means less people training to be doctors. Now I'm sure some people think oh they must have been coming in because those schools weren't meeting such and such standards and things like that. Well you know it wasn't driven by a public outcry. The public weren't saying oh the quality of doctors that are coming out of these medical schools are too low. In fact, if anything, the way to make sure that doctors are as well-trained as possible is to open as many as possible. So some will have reputations that excel and everyone will be like, well, I want my doctor to come from the top medical schools. Um, since this time, the US population has increased by almost three times, but the number of medical schools has declined by 26% to only 123. Now that fact may be outdated you'll have to you'll have to tell me um the number of medical schools that exist in america because that might be an old fact from some years ago but um you get the idea 19 states are limited by law to having a, only a single medical school why would you do that why would you do that unless you were trying to limit the number of doctors it, it, it defies all rationality in 1996, going back 20 years or more, there was a peak year for applications and only 16,500 candidates were accepted out of 47,000. I say today thousands of perfectly bright applicants who are eager to become medical professionals are just turned away. And as we know, doctors work insane hours to meet the demands for their skills. So many people want treated. So, so it's normal for surgeons to do these ridiculously long weeks. The Association of American Medical Colleges uh, warned that the USA could be short of 150,000 doctors by 2025 if training and graduation rates don't change. So obviously this bottleneck in supply is caused by government, not the function of the market. People would want more school medical schools to open. On a free market, tons more medical schools would open. And they would try and attract students by providing the best educational possible at the best price. Um, you know, why should they drive down the cost of training to be a doctor when the number of people who want to do it uh, are outstripping the number of places by three times? As you know, very many times, 
a practitioner could have to do four years of an undergrad, then four years of medical school, then a three-year residency. Not everything that a doctor does needs at least seven years of training, but everyone who does that job needs to have at least seven years of training. So by the time people have gone through this seven to 11 years, they're so burned out, they're debt laden from their uh, university career and they wanna make bank and it drives up the costs of healthcare provision like crazy by putting additional demands on the time of highly trained professionals. So my suggestion for this, I've said it on the podcast before, is just really allow clinics and hospitals to train their own assistants, right? See if you have trained seven to 11 years, you should only be doing things that require that much expertise or almost that much expertise to do. Anytime you're spending filling forms, anytime you're spending doing something that you could train another professional to do, um, that would be less highly skilled than you, but would still um, obviously have sufficient skills uh, to, to perform those lower order tasks, um, you should be able to hand off those responsibilities, basically. I think that, that's pretty clear. So the American Medica Medical Association lobbied to increase the number of years physicians had to spend in college. And what I'm saying is you should let people just train in the hospitals as apprentices to those people and take tasks off their hands. And that would radically reduce the demand, sorry, the, that would radically reduce the cost of healthcare and also those people who do those things could be um, later on go to university to study or college, as you call it in the, the States, could later go to college to study if that was something that they chose to do. Um, now I'm just trying to find some facts for you here. Um, what I'm saying is, for example, here in the US, um, we have people going to accident and emergency for things like sprains, flus, insect bites, and um, people go to their doctor. You could actually create um, all sorts of specialists that were just specialized, specialized in things like block noses and all, all the kind of things that people turn up for help with um, to you could delegate those things to a new class of professional, the likes of which has not been seen before. Uh, take those tasks off people who are too qualified to do them. Okay, so that's one proposal. Now, as I said, healthcare isn't nearly as expensive to provide as people are led to think it is. Um, I mentioned that some hospitals were charging 10 times the actual cost of provision. But in addition to that, lots of money goes to administrators, advertising, paying people to make sure you're complying with regulations. Um, uncompensated care, some, sometimes patients are unable or unwilling to pay. And sometimes hospitals can claim kickbacks from the government um, if they claim that they lost money on procedures. In 2011, the administrator for the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Service, Dr. 
Donald Berwick was just out the door. He just left his job and he said 20 to 30 percent of healthcare spending in the U.S. is going to waste. The five major causes are overtreatment, failure to coordinate care, the administrative complexity of the system, burdensome rules and outright fraud. Well, I talked a lot about the amount of fraud in the American healthcare system in the last two podcasts, if you want to check them out, if you haven't already. But it's pretty rich for this guy to say, oh, here are all the problems with our system as he's leaving, rather than do something about it while he's in office, or at least blow the whistle and use his profile to do something. (coughs) How typical. Um, A Harvard Business Review analysis published in 2013 revealed that while the U.S. healthcare workforce grew by 75% between 1990 and 2012, 95% of the new employees were administrative staff. Isn't that great? Let's just fill the whole thing with administrators. There's a great table. You can Google it. It's got figures published by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it charts the growth of hospital administrators and physicians between 1970 and 2013. So you can just type in that into Google, and you can see the chart, and you can meme it on Facebook or something like that, and it shows the ridiculous growth in the number of administrative staff. So this is throwing money in the wrong places. Another thing is, yeah, I've got a quote here about the increases in complexity of the basically uh, Jeffrey D. Selberg um, from a nonprofit organization called Institute for Health Cure Improvement says there's just more and more layers of stuff that hospitals and physicians offices, anyone in healthcare is being asked to do, documenting and meeting regulatory co- co- requirements. All of these have added to the demand without creating better outcomes in less time and with lower costs. So uh, uh, so he's saying that over-regulation is a problem. A study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine last year, uh, I don't know if it's last year anymore, actually. This might be two years old now. 57, uh, they observed 57 physicians and discovered that 29% of their work time was spent talking with patients or other staff members and another 49% was spent on electronic record keeping and desk work. So you see the logic of my idea of letting clinics train their own assistants. Just take all of these things off the hands of highly specialized staff that should be using their skills um, and also that obviously you need to tackle it from the other side, which is to cut the red tape. Um, it's also easy to sue doctors, and that's there's forms to fill out regarding that, and um, it also raises the cost of healthcare because people need to get massive amounts of liability insurance in case they mess up and are sued. So. Interesting point. The price of medical care in the US only really started to ratchet up with the introduction of Medicare and Medicaid under President Lyndon B. Johnston in the 1960s. Health expenditure went from just over 5% of GDP to 175 in the 60s. So that's over three times. 
uh, the percentage of growth in the US that's just going to pay for healthcare. Be uh, before that, poor, the poor and elderly were routinely admitted to hospitals at the same rate as they are now and received good medical care. Laws and regulations that inflated the costs of care and imposed unreasonable liability standards on professionals, even when they were acting in a voluntary capacity, eventually made the cost and risk of offering free care to the poor, which is which had previously been common, prohibitive. Isn't it good that the government's there to protect us by making it impossible for healthcare staff to voluntarily help the poor? Um, so let's look at what else we've got here. So as you can see, I don't need to spell out the obvious, the larger hospitals and medical firms benefit from overregulation because small companies obviously as a percentage of their expenses, the amount of money that they'd have to spend on people to help them comply with all the reg re regulations would be a much bigger percentage of the revenue. So it makes it hard. The, the more litigious it is, the more expenses there are associated with opening up in the market, the more difficulty small companies will have. And, you know, okay, yeah, the big companies have to also shell out for that staff, but it might be a lot less money to shell out for this, the lawyers, the accountants, the um, lobbyists, all that stuff. Yeah, they have to spend extra money on that but they save a lot more from not having to compete with as many other service providers. Another thing, <coughs> excuse me, the excessive authorization of patents is another massive driver of cost and maybe a pro prohibitor of innovation um, because a patent's essentially a mini monopoly, right? You say, well, you're the only person who's allowed to provide that product. And even if other people engineer a similar drug independently, um, then they won't be able to sell it. So people might just not bother. And it pushes up the price of provision. One study found that per capita prescription drug spending in the USA exceeds that in all other countries, $858 per head compared to an average of $400 for 19 other industrialized nations. And the most important factor allowing manufacturers to set high drug prices was market exclusivity. Um, and that's a, that's their protected monopoly rights, which are awarded by the FDA, the government organization, the Food and Drug Administration. So a 2017 article noted that prices for US-made pharmaceuticals have climbed over the past decade six times as far as the cost of goods and services all overall. In a famous case, you might have heard Milan, um, they were able to increase the price of the EpiPen. It created a big scandal, a lot of coverage. Um, they, they increased the price by 450%, even adjusting for inflation between 2004 and 2016. And the, the, the drug in each injection only cost about $1, but they were the only legal supplier of the product. And that's not the only example. Um, while, it, while an extreme example, 
um, Pfizer, Biogen, Gilead Sciences, Amgen, ABV, Turing Pharmaceuticals, Enviso, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, and Jazz Pharmaceuticals, to name quite a few big companies, all have benefited from price gouging, like sudden increases on monopoly healthcare products. So another thing is sometimes corporations can do something called evergreen, which means to repatent their products just by tweaking them slightly. Um, for example, the manufacturer of Prelosec, which is a remedy for heartburn, extended their monopoly by getting a second patent on the pills coating, right? So some researchers, Robin Feldman and Connie Wang, published a study reporting that between 2005 and 2015, at least 74% of the drugs associated with new patents in the FDA's records were not new drugs, but existing ones. And here's the thing, uh, what the company can do is they can evergreen their drug by varying it slightly, and then withdraw the original drug from the market so that physicians have got to issue the new and more expensive one, which is basically the same drug, but as just um, slightly slight variation in order to regain their patent. So it's been claimed that if there was no patent laws and free competition in the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical industry, then vital drugs would become within the price range of, in inverted commas, a bog standard ibuprofen. Now, the interesting thing is the public actually are being overcharged sometimes on patented drugs, which they themselves paid for the research for. Talk about a scam. One study revealed that over half of the most transformative drugs invented between 1984 and 2009 had their origins in research that was supported by the state. Hurrah! Publicly funded universities and government organizations like National Institutes of Health often lend researchers and funds to private developers. So that's great, isn't it? They tax you and they develop your drugs and then using your tax money, and then they give a private company the patent on the drug which you paid to develop. And then they overcharge you for the drug that you paid to develop. Great, great. Some people wonder what will drive innovation in the absence of patents. I'm not going to do a whole show on intellectual property here. But two of the main arguments is that patents actually prevent inventors from mixing recent developments by others with their own add-on ingenuity. So it actually slows down innovation. Um, the second is that it deters co companies from undergoing research on similar products that might appeal to similar or slightly different demographics in case, you know, I'm spending so much money on this product, but they just beat us. Um, they just pipped us to the post. They patented it before, and then we didn't, uh, we can't sell our drug even though we spent hundreds of millions on it. Mary Ruart, PhD, author of the book Death by Regulation, we've had her on the show before, says that it used to take seven years on average to patent, sorry, to bring a drug to market in the US because of the FDA regulations. And that has increased to 17 years. So she says without that increase of an extra 10 years to bring, to get a drug approved, many of these drugs have already been approved in Europe, but no, you need another 10 years. And um, that pushes the price of drugs through the roof uh, because the companies need to recoup these costs. So 
that's another she said without that 17 year research like window you wouldn't need patents but because it takes so long to bring a drug to market in the USA under the current system you kind of need patents okay so one thing is in two th in the this is a moderate solution in other words I mean it's not a completely free market or libertarian strict solution. But in 2007, the federal government of the USA offered the prize of a priority review voucher, PRV. And that basically means that the it's the right, a successful drug maker could use their PRV voucher to shorten the FDA approval time on a drug for a certain, for certain neglected diseases. So, the winner of that could sell their could use that to get their drug approved quickly to prioritize it or they could sell their vouchers to another drug company united therapeutics sold a prv for 350 million dollars so that's a uh alternative to patents the government could give prizes i'm personally not for it i'm just saying that it seems to have worked in some instances in the past and um, soaring medical costs Often people say, well, you know, so much technology goes into medical costs. And meanwhile, people are people have more sedentary and stressful lifestyles. They take caffeine, nicotine, junk food and other stimulants. They've got fattening diets and uh, people are getting older and more unhealthy. And, and, and because of that, we need lots of technology in healthcare, And that's why healthcare is so expensive. But you know, that's not really a very good argument because it's usually the most technological industries where we see the price falling the fastest. For example, smartphones, the the laptop I'm using. Oh, so yeah, I don't need to, you. Do you know what I mean? The the more technologically advanced uh, niches, the more the price tends to fall quickly over time. I mean, a flat screen TV 20 years ago would cost tons, tons and tons and tons. Whereas now you can get one for a hundred bucks or something like that. Um, the phone that, sorry, the computer they used to land the spacecraft on the moon was less powerful than a Nokia phone. So it's one of the things that annoys me because people say things like, well, how would you get the, how would you land on the moon without the government funding NASA? If they just waited 10 years before trying to land on the moon because of the advanced technology, they could have done it probably for a fraction of the price. So the fact that the medical, me, the medical industry uses technology does not justify the fact that the prices are so high. Okay. So, we can't really understand what drives the soaring costs of healthcare without an appeal to basic economic facts like the law of supply and demand, and that it is the tendency of markets to attract service providers into fields with huge profit margins. And on a free market, you'd see massive reductions in the price of healthcare. I'm about to make some simple policy suggestions that would sort out this mess. But I just want to say, I am working on this book, um, Why is Healthcare in America So Expensive? I've got to finish the, finish the last chapter, chapter eight. I want to solicit a high quality editor for this book 
I think it's going to be really helpful. It's going to be nice and short. And I will probably give away the PDF version for free because basically I want people to be able to copy and paste it in fa on Facebook and YouTube debates and so that people can demonstrate why healthcare is so expensive in America. Why am I writing about that? Uh, not the UK's healthcare system. Well, if America gets a cold, Sorry, if America sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. And I think that that's a good place to start. Actually, what inspired me was I was tired, tired of getting into the same Facebook debates where people would say, well, if you don't like the NHS, what do you want? The American system? And I started writing it, collecting what I knew um, in response to those comments, but it just grew arms and legs and turned into a book. It would be a really, really good time to donate to the Scottish Liberty Podcast. If you've been enjoying this show for a long time, please, 10 bucks, 20 bucks. It's to go towards the editor of this book. I want to have it out ahead of my debate with Andrew Yang this September so that when people discover me in September and go on Amazon and find out what's available, they'll see that my books you know, my book is there. So please, please help out. Um, I give I give away everything I do for free. As you know, I gave away UBI for, for and against for free because the campaign is more important than money. But if you want to help me be successful in the important work of providing a, sort, a source document that people can use to win the battle of ideas on a issue that's increasingly important then this is the time to do it you can paypal me at frequency 528 at hotmail.co.uk frequency 528 at hotmail.co.uk thank you so policies just suggestions that would radically reduce the causes of health the costs of healthcare in america and other countries one relax or abolish restrictions on building private hospitals Two, relax or abolish restrictions on the opening of new medical schools, including removing laws which limit some states to only having one. Three, allow doctors, surgeries, clinics and hospitals to train and certify their own assistants to allow lower wage trainees to take responsibilities off the hands of highly specialised staff. Four, relax patent laws on medical technologies and drugs. If necessary, prizes can be instituted for innovators. Five, relax liability standards on professionals, particularly when they're acting in a voluntary capacity. Six, tackle the five major causes of waste in American medical expenditure, as identified by former administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Dr. Donald Birdwick. That's overtreatment, failure to coordinate care, the administrative complexity of the system, burdensome rules and outright fraud. And finally, reduce red tape so less resources have to be spent on administrators and bureaucrats rather than medical staff and so that physicians need to spend less time on paperwork, electronic records, keep electronic record keeping and desk work. And those seven policies would radically reduce the price of healthcare in America.